0: of this episode of the Clayton Castle podcast. I'm going to do things a little bit differently on this episode. Usually I go straight into the interview, but I want to take some time now to set this up because this is going to be a huge episode. I'm really excited and really honored that this person agreed to be on the podcast. You know, since I started the podcast last April, can you believe it's already been a year of the Clayton Castle podcast? I know I can't. But when I started the episode back in April of last year, I knew at some point I wanted to do an episode on mental health, mental illness, ending the stigma, and talk to an advocate of ending the stigma and having those conversations about how we can do that. Now, this person I'm having on is a huge star, If you, especially if you're a Bengals fan. He is a Bengals fan. Legend. He is the all time leading scorer in Bengals franchise history with 1,151 points. He made 243 of 340 field goals for 71.4%, 517 of 539 extra points in his 14 NFL seasons. That includes one year with the Oakland Raiders, and the rest with our beloved Cincinnati Bengals. He was the kicker on the 1981 and 1988 Super Bowl Bengals teams. He is the greatest kicker in Bengals franchise history, and he is also a strong advocate for ending the stigma around mental health. I am so honored to be joined on the Clayton Castle podcast this week by Mr. Jim We have that interview coming up next. Welcome back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I am so honored and excited and pumped to welcome in my next guest. He is the highest scoring Bengal in franchise history. He was the kicker on the 1982 and 1988 um, Cincinnati Bengals Super Bowl teams. And he is a great advocate for ending the stigma around mental health. I am so humbled and honored to welcome in Mr. Jim Breach. Jim, thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Clayton. I appreciate the intro. Although that was the 81 and 88 season. Sorry, 81. I know as soon as I said I was 89 like 89 games. I think it's very confusing when they just barely get over to the new year, right?
0: Right. But the Bengals were pretty good that entire decade. So um, especially with you at the helm, and obviously you had um Boomer Sison and Max Montoya and Anthony Munoz. I mean, that you can name players for days on those teams. So um
1: Kenny Anderson also won an Kenny. MVP as well as Boomer yep. during that time. And it, well, the, you know the Bengals got to the Super Bowl and the quarterback didn't have to win an MVP, so right. that was a good thing, right?
0: Well, and exactly, and I was. Uh, we're going to get into this a little bit, but you were just minutes away from pop potentially being the first kicker to ever win a Super Bowl MVP as well. So uh, we'll get into that once we get to your career. But I want to start off. I always start off all these podcast interviews talking a little bit about the early days of the guests. So Jim breach, you're from California. What was it like to grow up in California? And then what interested you in football?
1: So I grew up in Sacramento and what I remember about the summers in Sacramento is it never rained. (laughs) Literally. I don't remember it raining. I, I know it probably sprinkled a time or two, but we never couldn't do something. Now, the downside of that is there's everything's really dry, so you know. Apart from that, though, you know, as long as I kept the fields water a little bit, we could play baseball, which I loved. And uh, you know, really, um, what got me into football was the fall and winter happened, <laughs> you know, and I, I love playing football. So we go out and play sand. So we carried over our baseball sandlot games. We just went over to play football, doing the same thing. And and actually our park had flag football. So I'm a big proponent of flag football. Mm-hmm. I grew up from the time I was probably eight years old, 89 years old playing flag football up until I played one year of tackle football in the eighth grade, but otherwise all the way through seventh and ninth, I played flag football. And then in high school it was 10th grade. We had a three year high school and that's when I started playing tackle full time. So, I, I loved football. Uh, I w- was a quarterback who uh, kicked. I learned I could kick, so became a kicker and a quarterback, and so I loved it. I, lo- I love playing it, and uh, I love the team aspect of it. But I, I really, in general, I just love sports. If you had a ball, I I probably enjoyed playing. I played basketball in high school also, so I just I just loved all that stuff.
0: You know, you already answered my next question. You said you played quarterback and you are a kicker. When did you decide to just settle on uh, kicking and focus on kicking as you went throughout your football career?
1: Well, Clayton, uh, as you probably have seen, I'm not the tallest guy. <laughs> and so uh, when I topped out at five six, uh, really there was only one college, a small college who recruited me to play quarterback. And other than that, I really didn't have anybody interested in me to play to kick really. Uh, I, I had a couple teams my junior year. I was the all city kicker. And then my senior year, I got hurt. I I, I messed up my quad uh, over kicking and I tore my quad. Oh. So the funny thing was I could run, but there's a little lag. You take your leg back a little bit farther when you're kicking. And that thing was like somebody was sticking a knife in it. So I only kicked in a couple games my senior year. And Cal was one of the teams that had been interested and. In, so when I got hurt, they went off to another guy named Butch Edge, who was also in Sacramento, also played baseball like I did. And he was a quarterback and kicker. And he was like six, three, six, four. So the yin and yang, the uh, mutton Jeff, that that was us. But uh, he, he got the scholarship to go to Cal. At that time, it was unlimited scholarships. So, uh, you know, that that wasn't working out very well for me. I was going to go to junior college and play baseball. Or uh, subsequently, I I actually had a chance to sign with the Pirates later on in June of that year. So I probably would have done that, actually. But my high school coach called Paul Hackett, Nathaniel Hackett. His, His father was the recruiter for our area. He says, during the baseball season, he says, you know, when you're through here, why don't you stop by and take our kicker that was hurt this past year, take him out. He's healthy and take a look at him. So we did. I was out on the baseball field, kicking footballs. He says, you look pretty good. Why don't you come down, have a workout? So my big, my big recruiting trip, we had all these guys. We had a pretty talented team. We had a lot of athletic ability. We had three guys playing the NFL off of our high school team. Oh wow. oh, wow. Nobody, nobody of a big name that you know people would really recognize. But one was a fourth round pick with with the uh, Cowboys. Another was a free agent played couple years. And then they, uh, then he ended up playing a number of years in the USFL. So I get down to, so my big recruiting trip was, Hey mom, can I borrow the car to drive to Berkeley? That was, that was the extent of my trip. I didn't get to go on a plane. I didn't get to go to Oregon state or Washington, Washington state, any of those schools, UCLA, SC. So I borrowed, I borrowed my mom's car to drive 75 miles to the and I might as well have been going into a different stratosphere. I mean, it was just so different than what I was so used to, that I was used to. You know, Berkeley was very liberal, and it was where the the uh, Vietnam demonstration started. I mean, the sit-ins. I mean, it was the place, and I was only missing that by a few years. So it was a it was way different than what I expected. And then I get up there to try out, and I I'm able to find the the gym, and I get up to the football office and I'm, you know, I go in and meet the secretary. I said, I'm looking for the uh, special teams coach. I think it was Jim Erkenbeck at the time. And it's like, who's here? Who are you? <laughs> and like, <laughs> uh, Jim Breach, I was supposed to come and meet with the coach. So he comes in and he's like, Oh, that's right. I forgot you were coming. <laughs> they were really this was a this was anticipatory. I mean, the head coach, ever, no, they didn't, they they forgot I was going to be there. I'm mean, I'm a kicker, right? What's the big deal? So then uh, he said, "Well, let's go down to the stadium." So we go to the stadium. We go up because it's actually uphill. Cal Stadium. If you stand on the west side, up at the rim, San Francisco, the Golden Gate, everything lays out in front. It's absolutely one of the most spectacular views you'll ever see. So, and that's what their weight room. The view you see from their weight room is uh, the same view. It's pretty amazing. So anyway, we get to the stadium, and the coach says, um, "Did well first before we leave the office? He goes, did you bring some footballs?" I said, well, coach, I, I thought you'd have footballs, right?" And he's like, "All right, I'll get some footballs." And then we get there, and you know, in college then we could use a tee, and I stupidly didn't bring it. I didn't even think to bring a tee. The only thing I really bought, brought was a change of clothes and my shoes. I figured they they kind of did this, right? They would have stuff like footballs and tees. And so we get up there and we're in the stadium. I said, coach, is there a place I can go change? And we tried a couple doors and everything's locked. He's, no. Nope. So I'm out in the middle of the stadium, changing my clothes to get into something I can kick in. And then we get out, then we do get in the, on the field and the sprinklers are on. So then we got to walk around and we find this big cement cover and we pull this cover up where you can reach down. and have like an arm and you can turn it off that way. So, again, they were really excited to have me, they, but they just forgot to turn the sprinklers off. Right. So we get out in the field. And I did punting. They were really, really looking for me as a punter, which I wasn't a very good punter. I was OK. But that day I punted really well. And he says, do you place kick too? And I said, yeah, I do. And uh, but I don't have a tee with me. So we go hunting around and we grab this cement rectangle that's probably an inch, inch and a half thick. He says, this will work. <laughs> so he's holding and he's a terrible holder. And I only went out to like 30 or 35 yards. The whole time I'm thinking, I'm going to break my toe. I know I'm going to break my toe. I didn't. But I can, and I, may, I did okay. So we get all done. And he says, look, we're not really looking for a kicker. We're looking for an offensive lineman. <laughs> like, I drove all the way down, you know, up over here, down here to find that out. <clears throat> so a couple weeks later, the NFL draft or the uh, baseball draft happens. I didn't get drafted, but I did get offered later by Pittsburgh, but I didn't get drafted. Well, that Butch Edge who had the scholarship was a baseball, was a pitcher. He's the first pick for a Milwaukee in that draft he signs with Milwaukee. Milwaukee doesn't, that was the first year you could be pro in one sport and play a college sport. They said, we don't want you playing football. We don't want you getting around football at all. We want your country on baseball. So all of a sudden, there's a possibility of this scholarship opening, but I didn't know all this going on. And a week later, two weeks after the, I get a phone call from Coach Hackett. He says, hey, I'm not really sure why we're doing this because I only tried nine kicks all through high school. I made four of them, a couple of them were blocked. Didn't even kick my senior year. He says, we got a full scholarship for you if you wanna come down. So I was the uh, next day, I said, I'll be there. So I go down and sign my letter of intent. And it was uh, pretty amazing. Now to finish that story, so I get drafted by Detroit. I don't make it there, I get released in 78. And at the end of the year, uh, the, the Raiders had said they want to bring me in. I went and tried out one day, and Jim Plunkett was there. He signed Plunkett. He said, we want you for 1979. Okay. Well, the last week of the 78 season, they don't make the playoffs the, previous, the day before on Sunday. So they said, we want you to come in and, and kick for us and be on the roster for this last week. John Madden's last game as an NFL coach was my first game with the Bengals. <laughs> Over oh, the Raiders. So I go in and end up, I didn't end up kicking. He actually sat me cause they didn't release the other kicker old oh man. He pulled me aside after breakfast that morning. He says, Hey, look, I don't think it's fair to, to put all the blame on one guy. You know, this is a team game. So look at the weather. It was terrible. It was raining. It was muddy he goes, it's a terrible day. Why uh, you can start fresh? Come into training camp, and you can be mentally ready. And so, don't worry about today. Just go relax, watch the game. That's what I did. I get in the elevator to go up to the press box, and special teams coach Steve Hortmeyer gets in. And he goes, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> so I got, I'm down for the day, Coach. Put me down. So uh, I, uh, I got, I got to be on the roster. I got to spend some time with John Madden, and he was a, a great coach. I was a huge Raiders fan. It was pretty. It was amazing walking into that locker room. And then, uh, so the next year in training camp, I ended up making the roster. I beat out Earl Mann. And in the meantime, that Butch Edge, when, when Toronto was a uh, franchise, new franchise, they did a they did a, a, another draft. So they got to the draft. And, and they picked Butch Edge. So Butch Edge got drafted first by Milwaukee and first by Toronto. I mean, 6'4", he probably threw 95 to 100. I faced him once. I faced several guys that pitched in the majors, and nobody came close. Randy Lurch, Pete Redfern, guys that really threw hard, and nobody came close to touching this guy. But he had some arm problems, I know. Uh, So anyway, the, the paper comes out the next day, breach house man for Raider job, right below it, it says Blue Jay rookie wins first pro game and Butch <laughs> Edge beat the, beat the A's to win his first game. and well, that would have been, and then I, I had won I got my first job only because he decided to go play baseball. So I thought that was kind of my full circle at that point. Um, so it was pretty cool. It turned out well for both of us. Wow. Uh, I did wow. not know
0: that part about um, you. You, You know, only kicking what nine kicks in high school, and then here you are, full scholarship to Cal. Um, I was shocked
1: too, to tell you the truth.
0: Did you? I mean, I want to like take you back, take me back there in that tryout. Like, did you know that? I guess you didn't. Did you have a feeling like this could become something? You might have a special gift that you didn't know about. That you could be an NFL kicker at this tryout. Did you have that
1: that thought? Not even. My only thought was maybe I'll kick well enough that they might want to consider bringing me in. Mm-hmm. That, that, no, I had no inclination yeah. whatsoever. That, matter of fact, I didn't even think that that I even had a shot until probably my junior year in college.
0: Oh, wow. Jeez. Well, you obviously did well enough to get in the NFL. So, um, <laughs> man. Um, so you, you said you played for Oakland. And then you know you spent your entire life in California, and then you sign with the Bengals for 1980. What was that transition like, moving from hot, sunny California to the Midwest?
1: Well, the Bay Area isn't quite hot; it's cool. Matter of fact, San Francisco in the summertime is freezing. The fall, the fall when they played football games, spectacular. So. I, was, I got cut by the Raiders off the 1980 team. Chris Barr had been the kicker for the Bengals for, year, you know, for several years, and I knew the Raiders loved him because, again, I was a big Raider fan. I knew they loved Chris Barr. I, I thought Chris Barr was the best kicker coming out when he came out. He became available, and I knew that if somebody that they wanted previously was available, they were going to pick him up. And the problem was... He was at the same position I was. So I kind of anticipated it, but unfortunately, and it did happen. And I remember getting called into Tom Flory's office because it was his first year. He says, well, we decided to make a change. So it had nothing to do with your kicking. It's just that we decided to go in a different direction. I said, Coach, can I ask who you're bringing in? He said, Chris Barr. I said, okay, I thought so. I go into the special teams office. Steve Ortmeier says, this is the most unfair decision I've ever Seeing you know the whole time I've been in pro sports this is just not right blah 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 blah. So I mean the head coach made the decision so it didn't matter he could say all he wanted right, but but it kind of got me feeling sorry for myself today, hey, you know I kind of got screwed here. However, it didn't matter, and actually the interesting thing that Saturday before the first game uh, phone rings at home before cell phones. So I pick it up, and it's Al Davis. Al Davis was on the line, and he was uh, just telling me he was sorry that things worked out the way they did That to uh, stick in there and kick and stay with it, that I'll have a long. He thought, he says, heck, I think you'll kick for 10 more years. Just stick with it. So uh, I really appreciated the call, and he certainly didn't have to do that. And then later on in the year, uh, I get a call from the bank. Actually, I got a call from Cleveland. Uh-huh two weeks before the Bengals called or a week before the Bengals called Cleveland called and they were 1980 cardiac kids. They end up losing a Nancy championship game. And Mark Mosley, no, uh, Don Cockroft was their kicker. And they called and Paul Warfield calls and says, look, you know, Don's got some back issues. He's got a, a knee issue. We may have to sit him down for the rest of the year. Would you be interested in coming out? I'm thinking, all right, I don't have a kicking job. You guys are going to go to the playoffs. You guys may go to the Super Bowl. Yeah, I'm interested. So that was on like Thursday. So somebody get in touch with you, fly out over the weekend. Friday comes, Saturday comes, Sunday comes. We don't hear from anybody. Monday comes. And there's I'm at work at Clearprint Paper Company in Emeryville, California, where I was working. And uh, Dave Roberts, our supervisor, said, hey, hey Jim, you got a call. It's it's a team on the phone, so it was a big deal. They they all followed my career, so they were excited when I got a call from a team, and they were great. If I need to go, they they'd go, and the job was there when I came back. It was pretty phenomenal. So I got on the phone, and it was Frank Smouse. I thought it was somebody from the from the Browns saying we're not going to, you know, we don't need you, but it was Frank Smouse from the Bengals, and said, hey, we 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 need, we're looking for a kicker, we're going to. Try out a couple guys, we'd like to fly you in. I'll have you come in. I said, all right, great. So I left, I left sunny Bay Area at 72 degrees. I landed in Cincinnati and the day we went out to kick, it was like 30 degrees, 26 to 30 <laughs> degrees with about a 20 mile an hour wind. It's the coldest I have ever been in my life. But you know what, it was an opportunity. And I didn't care if it was in Siberia. I was gonna go play or at least try. But the funny thing was that morning they said, take, take a taxi, take the taxi. we you're five minutes from the stadium. There's Stouffer's downtown at the time. You're five minutes from the practice field. Just tell them spinning field. Okay, I can do that. I get in the cab at nine. We're gonna kick at 10. It's five minutes away. I'll get over there at 9.15 at worst, change, you know, change the ready to go at 9.15. I had plenty of time to stretch out and get ready and warmed up. Well, 45 minutes later, because the guy had no clue where spinny field was, I could have walked there in 10 minutes. That's how close it was. Maybe 15. And it took 45 minutes to get, I mean, we drove all over. I saw sites I haven't seen to this day. I drove around. We get in there at 915. I'm thinking, all right, I might as well just turn around and go to the airport. So I walk in the building and down the hallway comes Mike Brown. Like he introduces himself. I said, Mr. Brown, I apologize. Our cab, my cab driver had no clue where Spinny Field was, so he said, he goes, "That's all right. It's it's tough to find. And he goes, Besides, the weather's terrible." The other kicker was Rich Zaro, who had kicked for New Orleans for a number of years. So they went out and kicked. I, I waited, and then when they were done, I went back out. And the thing is, the snapper was Blair Bush, played at University of Washington. The excuse me, Holder was Mike Levenseller. He played at Washington State, and I went to Cal. So we were all Pac-8 guys when it was still the Pac Eight. He goes, Pac-8's winning this. So they were they were cluing me in on everything that happened. Because you you just you kick your field goals and you kick off okay. You got it. You got it. So that's what happened. Wow. And then I yeah. get so they send the other guy on the, on the road and Mike, Mr. Brown brings me into his office. And before I left, Lee Steinberg was my agent. I was one of Lee's early, before he became the agent, the Jerry Maguire agent, he was, I was maybe one of his first 10 guys. And he says, hey, give me a call if they want to sign you. Well, the Raiders had, I still have the contract from the Raiders, what that was going to be. And I sat down and and Mr. Brown says, look, we'll pay you, Last four weeks and prorated over what the Raiders were like 30 something thousand. Uh, and I, you know, in my head, I'm thinking that seems very fair, actually. But Lee'd say, you know, have, how about calling me? So I said, look, Mr. Brown, uh, Lee Steinberg is representing me. And he was hoping to, that I would call and just let him know. He goes, look, I goes, Jim, the other guy isn't on the airplane yet. We can easily get him back here. So you can sign this, what I'm offering, or we'll have the other guy kick. Where do I sign? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Which is fair, I mean, it really was. Mm -hmm. Now, when you came- That was my uh, indoctrination into Cincinnati Bengal football.
0: Now, when you came to Cincinnati, Paul Brown uh, was the president and the, uh, I guess, GM, and the owner. And you mentioned you also played for Al Davis two giants in football ownership and, and management, what was it like to play under those two owners?
1: Um, Al Davis was much more involved with the, on on the field stuff that was going on. Like with, he would get ingrained in the coaches, what the coaches would do. He'd been a he'd been an uh, AFL coach of the year, he, he got himself, well, his whole life, right? He was always really, really involved. Um, he was an interesting guy, very intimidating. I mean, they were in their own way, they were a little intimidating. I mean, these guys were huge. Paul Brown is the, the way the NFL's played days because of Paul Brown, unbelievable innovator. I remember uh, the draft of 1980. So I would have to work. So I worked part, a part time job. Clearprint, paper company, worked a part-time job. And then I went over and worked out. So I was usually over there late in the afternoon. And I'm in there just finishing up. And Al Davis walks by. He says, breach. It was the day of the draft. They just finished the draft. How are you doing? I said, I'm doing good, Mr. Davis. How are you doing? He goes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how I'm doing. It only matters how you're doing. He goes. Did you see the draft? Did you see we didn't draft a kicker? I, I did. I did. I saw that. I mean, he goes because you're our guy. You're our guy, Breach. Well, then they cut me <laughs> later on in that after training camp. But it was uh, he intimidated the crud out of me, actually. <laughs> oh yes. And so and Paul like Paul Brown. Paul Brown was very very soft-spoken, but he um, in that age it wasn't unusual to create fear. You know, there was a story about being in a meeting where when he was with the Browns, and there's some rookie comes in and he's just tearing it up, and calls him out to me. One of their linebackers is so and so. Rookie's beating you out. He's playing better than you. He might take your job. Next day, the guy, the incumbent, had the best practice of his life and went on to have a great year. So there's a fear factor, and I'm not real big on that. But, and in many cases, it back, sometimes it backfires, but uh, in in many cases, because guys are so competitive, it can turn into something that really gets you motivated. And uh, obviously with all the championships he won in Cleveland, he was doing a good job of motivating and getting the Bengals to a playoff in like th- their third year, which was un- unheard of. Cause I mean, it wasn't, they didn't get the players, as good of players as they get today. I mean, they, They brought like 150 guys to camp and trying to come up with a team. So it's pretty amazing they were able to do that in such a short period of time.
0: You know, I think one thing that we noticed with this past Bengals team, the 2021 Bengals, was that there were a lot of stars or a lot of good players, but they had such great chemistry. There wasn't really big egos. They loved playing with each other. You know, the 80s Bengals teams were a lot, you know, kind of the same way. You had Anthony Munoz, you had yourself, you had Kenny Anderson, you had Boomer Esiason, Max Montoya. You had big names, great talents, but you guys were so successful. What was it like? What was the chemistry like in the locker room, on the field during those 80s Bengals teams?
1: So to your point, yeah, our chemistry was great. And to this day, we're still really good friends. We have a lot of guys uh, off those two teams still live here and, we see each other quite a bit, and, and we're all tight. If somebody has something going on, we're all there as, as often as we can be. Uh, it really makes it just, you know, you kind of playing for your brother, too, not just for your own sake, but, you know, you can – like those great offensive lines we had during the 80s, these guys could always count on one another. They were really tight. Offensive linemen in general stay pretty tight, and those guys were really tight, good friends. But throughout the, the roster, and then in 88 – uh Sam decided to have a black guy and a white guy uh and be roommates, but also white, uh, an offensive and defensive player. So, you know, you're hanging out with the offensive guys, you're in meetings all the time. So those you don't get blessed, but you don't get to spend a lot of time with the defensive guys and, and vice versa. So I think that was outstanding. I had Eddie Brown as my as my roommate, and then and I and ask Ed some questions and he's like one and two word answers and then he was sleeping so i didn't really get to find out much about eddie and then we came back for the 50th anniversary and i come walking down the hallway and ed's walking the other way he goes "Rumi, how you doing me (laughs) i'm like that's you right now you've talked to me more than you talked that whole train cat he goes man i was so tired i was so tired of running all day long i just had to sleep (laughs) and i get that they did that's all they did those DBs and wide receivers, all they do is run. He talk a so little. So that bit. brought us together as a team, too. So and and again, we've all stayed pretty close. I think part of it's putting together the team. I think the Bengals, this current, uh, you know, the front office, the coaching staff, they've made an effort to put together a team with guys that are leaders, captains, people get involved in a community that are, you know, just highly respected guys. And if you look around, they they do have done a great job of it. And these guys are, are selfless. I mean, everybody's out there trying to win for the team. You know, the kind of season Jamar Chase had, you, in some cases, this guy, you kind of lose him a little bit because he'd become bigger than the team. He was never that way. They said he was always asking questions, trying to get better, worked really, really hard. And those are the kind of guys they've got on the team. And so it's encouraging because then and you want to fight for your teammates and continue to, you know, obviously they want to go back and do what they did. And just finish off the super bowl win
0: you know uh, I, th- I when i think about this past season i think about the success that the Bengals had and how it really brought cincinnati together um you know my mom she is not a sports fan at all um she willingly turned on the i think it would end up being the Bengals chiefs in the afc championship game never turned on a football game in her life it was like i want to watch this um so can you talk a little bit about the similarities you see, not just in the Cincinnati Bengals organization, the team, but how the city rallied around this team uh, compared to how they did in the 80s with those two Super Bowl teams?
1: So, one of the things that a lot of the guys that played on those two teams hoped for was that the current players would get the opportunity to experience the city when it's a Super Bowl season and how the city just comes to life. It's unbelievable. You see, Bengal stuff everywhere and it's crazy. And just like 90 with the Reds, and you know, when when things are going well, you know, it's it's awesome because you start drawing in people like your mom that don't always watch it. Heck in 81, when we came back from being Pittsburgh the 15th week of the season, which clinched the division, and it, we were in Pittsburgh, and they'd won the Super Bowl in January of eighty or February of eighty. So they weren't that far removed. They had all those guys from the Super Bowl teams, and we beat them there we get to the airport and there's like 10 or 15,000 people at the airport. It was just nuts. It was just, wow. We come walking out and there's literally people every, everywhere you could from it all, all filling up the, the uh, garage and all walking out, you know, you could go up to the gate then. So the whole, there's just a line of people all the way out to the parking. And then we're driving on the road. People are standing on the side of the road. And it's like nuts. That's what these guys got to experience. That feeling, the way the city was energized, the way you, you, it's hard to believe and it's crazy, but there's a the pride. You know, when your team's not doing well, it does you don't like, well, I'm from Cincinnati. Oh, you guys got a great football team. Now, yeah, I'm from Cincinnati. Oh man, you guys had a great season this year. It's funny how it impacts how people view you. You know, as much as sports obviously are not, not gonna change world affairs, but it can give you a sense of pride in your city. And, you know, New England, Patriots in the nineties, eighties and nineties were pretty mediocre. They weren't one of the better teams at all. And then Bill Belichick gets there and look what they've become. And there's a generation, a couple of generation of people there that have no idea that they ever lost. You know, but they did. And now they have become this stable of staple of you know success and you know what the Bengals are hoping to become.
0: Yeah, I think what's really amazing is, you know, I was born in 1993. I did not grow up with a successful Bengals franchise until about 2005. But again, I didn't even see a playoff win until this past year. Um, so this team really brought not just um, the city together, but it also brought new fans on board, fans who aren't used to winning. Because again, I was born in 93. I didn't experience the nineteen ninety. Uh, World Series or the 7576 right. World Series or the 80s bang- Bengals teams. And so this was our really first um look at success in the playoffs. Bengals had or Bengals had never won a playoff game in my lifetime. Reds have not won a um playoff series in my lifetime. Uh it was I'm a diehard I'm a season ticket holder for UC football. So it was fun to watch them go to the cotton and to the to the playoffs. Um but no, I just think this past year for Bengals fans, football fans in, in the city, um, something to look forward to. I think the future is bright. Um, one thing I do want to ask you is you played for two great head coaches in the age You played for Forrest Gregg and Sam Weiss. Both of those coaches led the, the Bengals to the Super Bowl. What were some things about those coaches, about the techniques that they that they um, put on the players or the way they coached that made those teams so successful?
1: Well, I think uh, in, in both cases, it's expectations and accountability. But in Forrest's case, he came from playing for Vince Lombardi. I mean, it was doing up-downs. It was very much tough love. I mean, every every meeting at training camp, he would just scream and yell at us. Tell us what dogs we were and how bad we were and this and that. and You know, just spurring us on to be better. But the one thing about Forrest... Was, even though he'd yell at you and get on you, you could go into his office and talk to him. And if you have if you have a gripe or something, you go in there and you could yell at him. I remember I, I remember walking by Tom Dinkles in his office yelling and screaming at Forrest, and Forrest is yelling and screaming back. And I, and just recently, probably in the last six months, I talked to Tom. Maybe eight months. We talked about that. I said, Yeah, I remember when walking by. He goes, You know. He never brought that up ever again. It was never, once you got it out, the one thing with force, he was very fair and very straightforward. You knew where you stood. It doesn't, That's not always the case with, with Sam, you didn't always know where you stood, but with force, you knew where you stood and it, you didn't always like it. Right. I mean, cause sometimes it wasn't where you wanted it to be, but he, uh, he was a straight shooter and he, and guys loved him. They loved playing for him. And you know, as we started to win it, Became he kind of backed off on all the negativity and started to build us up a little bit. But yeah, he kind of tore us down and then uh, built us back up. So he was amazing that way, from the old school way of doing things. Now Sam was more psychological. Would do you know it was more in the uh, Bill Walsh realm and the way he did things and like he get up there and say, well, if I talk. 45 minutes and you'll, you'll hear 15 minutes of it. And you know, all these, all these philosophical things, he was big obviously in the community, great offensive mind. He was obviously, I mean, he was very innovative. If you see today when there's a timeout called on the field and the teams come over and all get together. So they might be halfway between the sideline and the field, but the whole offense comes and the coach goes in there oftentimes. That's Sam, because it used to be just you had one guy give the message and you go in there and th- his thought was, why am I going to have somebody else give a message when I can just go out and tell them? Now you see many teams do that where everybody gets to hear the message or teams in a V on the sideline. You'll see the benches in a V instead of being straight across. Doesn't seem like a big deal, but if you if you stand in the middle of that V, Nobody is way down at the end. They're all kind of within arm's length of you, so everybody can hear. You're in a stadium that's loud. Everybody can hear. If you're in a straight line, those guys at the end, they can't hear what's going on. They can't hear what you're saying. So one guy's like, what did he say? What are you saying? He's leaning over and trying to pass. Again, right? It's a communication thing. So it's little things like that that he carried over from the uh, no huddle offense, the sugar offense really the whole idea behind it was teams were we had a great offense you know similar to what the bengals have today and we had the best offensive line in the game and the whole idea was that if they're going to change out personnel well they're going to have too many people on the field guys running off depending on the personnel we put in then guys are running back and forth so you snap the ball or or sometimes you leave the same personnel on the field And they're switching out because now it's a passing, you know, you know they're going to pass, so they're bringing in a defensive end to replace a nose tackle or something, and you get them offside, and they start doing a lot more of that, and and it started to flow. So all of a sudden, and the league tried to the night before we played the AFC championship game, tried to outlaw the no huddle, literally outlaw it, the night before the game. Miss what we've done all season long because. Uh, Marv Levy was complaining so much, and they finally, at the last minute, chose chose not to do that. So what L- Marv Levy had was Fred Smarless was falling down, hurt all the time, and that's how these teams slowed it down. And, and today, it still happens some today, right? But then it's kind of interesting. Marv Levy took Jim Kelly and the K gun and took them to I took them to four consecutive Super Bowls using exactly what the Bengals were doing. So funny. When he, he he wanted to outlaw it, but he ended up using it
0: oh that's funny now um super Bowl 23 well first of all you made a lot of important kicks in your life you had game winners division clinchers um Super Bowl 23 you made t- you scored 10 points out of the bengals 16 points you guys had the lead with about three minutes left a lot of people say had the bengals kept that lead you could have been the first and to this date i guess only Super Bowl MVP that was a kicker. How do you keep your poise in big moments like that? What really drives you to just stay calm, make those kicks in big moments?
1: So just to finish that, after the game, John Murdo, who was the business manager and actually Lap told me this too. Um, John came in he said, look, I just want to tell you, sport magazine always does a preliminary ballot for the halt for the uh, MVP they give out a car and that type of thing. Well, after I kicked the kick, they did a preliminary ballot. I was MVP with 318 or something to go in the game. And then obviously Montana and Rice. So the way I look at it, it took one of the five greatest quarterbacks, the greatest wide receiver of all time, and one of the five greatest coaches of all time to beat us. And, you know, and took it right down to 34 seconds. So... But anyway, to um, I didn't always do a good job of that. When I was in college, I was a freshman in college. My third game I ever kicked in, I uh, had a 34-yard field goal to beat USC, who was number one in the country. We are in the L.A. Coliseum. So, again, it was my third game kicking in. And I went out there, and I found, you know, I realized I wasn't nervous. But I kept thinking about all the stuff that was happening around me What are my teammates going to say? What are my, what's my family? What are the fans? What are the TVs, radio? You know, all this stuff was jumbled up in my head as to what everybody else was thinking. And then I had to pull in the kick. And then when I was with the Raiders, I had a short kick to tie a game and I hit the upright and then finished out that season. Then 80, I get released. So I had a gap of time in there until I signed with the Bengals. So I'd be out kicking and I'm, I'm, maybe I was a little slow on the uptake, but there really wasn't anybody teaching the mental side. We really were kind of on our own. There was a little bit of uh, it come, some stuff had come out about doing some visualization, but I that was more into the early 80s. This was, you know, 1980. And it dawned on me. It's just dawned, I have no control over anything else. Right? I have no control over anything else that's going on except the kick itself. That's the only thing I can control. It seems pretty obvious, right? But when you're out doing it, it didn't come out so obvious because there's a lot of things happening. So, my second game with the Bengals, we're playing Baltimore. There's three seconds on the clock, and I've got a 20 something yard fugle to win the game. And it was the first time, though, I could implement. Really implement it in a big game in a big kick. What I had thought about, I went out there and I just focused on the kick. The and and the what you do, the process you go through, steps back over that whole process that you're going through, and you do it and practice over and over and over and over. So the idea, what you're trying to do, is you kind of remove yourself mentally from the situation. I've done this a thousand, hundreds of thousands of times. That's all I'm doing here. It's the process. If you can do that and not worry about the outcome, because you start thinking about misses and makes, then it's a crapshoot. You know, if I go, oh man, if I miss this kick, you know, it's oh my, it's going to be all over. And, you know, you can't. Got to remove yourself from that. The only thing you can control is the kick. So I went through the process. I made that kick. I made an overtime kick the next week against the Bears. End up, setting NFL record for overtime field goals, made some really big kicks, as you mentioned. But it was it came down to really failing my way to some success. Because if I hadn't missed those, maybe I would have made them, but why I made them probably would have escaped me. And until later, you know, it wasn't until later that I really honed into what the issue was and, and it made me much better. Right, these guys I- today, though, can handle it unbelievably. They've had years and years of this preparation. The mental side, they're so far advanced from where we were. I mean, my son in high school was where I was 10 years in the NFL as far as understanding what he was doing. Right. I,
0: now, I have a question for you that I've always wanted to ask an NFL kicker. Um, something that I always think about when I'm watching a game. Does icing the kicker actually work?
1: <laughs> I personally don't think it does. But as soon as a guy misses a kick every, all the coaches think it does. So they'll continue to do it. You know, if you, I guess if anything, where you have to repeat it several times, but typically when you're kicking, you're, you're kicking a couple balls from the same spot. Um, I saw it work on Justin Tucker. So if it worked on Justin Tucker, everybody's going to do it right. You know, and it wasn't that he, it, it changed his mental approach at all. It just, he just didn't hit a good ball. So yeah, I, And why every once in a while backfires, the guy misses and then, you know, he's able to get a practice kick and he makes his adjustment and knocks it through. But here's the way I look at that. I've already been standing on the sideline for three hours, not kicking, go over and hit some balls in the net. So I've already spent maybe two minutes of an entire game out on the field. Most of the time has been spent not kicking. So what's the difference if I'm not kicking? You know, all I'm doing is going through that process again, or I kick the ball and I just go do the process again. So to me, we spend so much, we have so much downtime anyway, that it's, uh, I don't, it shouldn't, but at times it seems to work.
0: Okay. I have one more question about past Bengals. And then I want to talk a little bit about the current Bengals. And then I promise we'll get to the topic of mental health. Um, This past year, the Bengals, Finally, brought a Ring of Honor to the uh, to Paul Brown Stadium, not including yourself, because I personally think you should be in the next class. But that's just me. Um, appreciate that. Not including yourself, who do you believe should be the next four in? Hmm.
1: Well, Isaac Curtis, for sure. You know, maybe Chad. Chad had a, a phenomenal career. Uh, Corey Dillon's going to be, got to be in there soon. Uh, although the way he went out, I think people are going to be a little, I don't think people appreciate how he really was a Hall of Fame back. Yeah. Um, you know, David Fulcher. Uh, or James Brooks. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, who's going to, actually there's only going to be two. Oh. I think from now on it's only two at a time. What about Boomer? Oh, Boomer. Obviously, we'd have to be one of the yeah, I mean he's an MVP in the league. So he's got to be up there. Although in the top fifty, he was number six, and I was number five. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I'll never let him live that one down. (laughs)
0: Oh my gosh, that's that's funny. Um so talk a little bit about this Bengals team. You, you know, you played with the perhaps the two greatest quarterbacks in Bengals history, in um, Boomer Esiason and Ken Anderson. What do you see in Joe Burrow that you saw in those guys that has made him so successful just in such a short time in the league?
1: Confidence, swagger. He just does not get ruffled. He's got a belief level. I mean, no matter what happens around him I and mean, people are getting knocked down, he gets knocked down. It never seems to faze him. He just keeps plugging away and his accuracy is crazy. You know, it's similar to Kenny. Yeah, Boomer wasn't as accurate as Kenny or Joe. Kenny, but Boomer had an unbelievable arm. He was accurate. I mean, he was, he was really an accurate quarterback, but, but not like those guys, those guys were, Unbelievably precise. Boomer ran play action as well as it's ever been done. So they 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 were different in that sense that Kenny was much quieter, Boomer was much louder, uh, commanding a uh, commanding presence. I don't know that Joe is really loud, but there is an it factor with him. I mean, you just feel it. I mean, guys talk about it. They just they can feel it. I felt that way with Boomer. I mean, I've been in places and you you just knew Boomer was there. There's something about their aura. And he has this special, and and I think part of it is because his belief level is so great, he just pulls everybody, he gets everybody else believing, right? I think it's something similar to Joe Montana. Joe Montana wasn't the most outspoken guy, but he just made things Happen. He made things happen late in games, and Joe Burrow just pulls everybody up. You know, if he'd had a split second longer, it's a touchdown to Chase. Because you can see he's looking back over there, and they're just uh, if if they could have put a body on Donald at all, just slowed him up a hair. I think the Bengals win the game. You know, they
0: experienced something that unfortunately you have experienced, and that's coming just just short in the Super Bowl how does a player or a team overcome that the next season the the will how do they, how do they regain the will and the the drive to want to finally get over that hump well
1: that's, that is a, a great question because typically the super bowl runner up doesn't do well the next year they don't they don't make the playoffs typically and our two years we made it one year and and 89 we didn't Although in 89, we went eight and eight. We were five and one in the division. We scored four, 414 points or something like that. We gave up 290. Can you imagine that? We, we were 100 and plus on the plus side, 100 and something on the plus side. So we have the record for the most plus points and, and not have a winning record. So we were playing well. Sometimes we couldn't, we just couldn't kind of get out of our own way. I thought our team was exceptional. And 82, 82, we tied for the best record in the AFC in a straight and a strike year. So again, it's, it's, it's a belief level that you have to have. I think bringing these new offensive linemen it's going to change the dynamic of that offense a lot which uh, it'll be easier to run the ball, I believe, which will allow also potentially give Joe a little bit more time to throw or even if not necessarily more time, but more of a clean pocket. The hardest thing for quarterback is to have people being pushed back in your face. If you ever watch Tom Brady in new England or even with Tampa, it's like, it's like an umbrella, right? Even though they might be pushed back a little, There's still room in there to step up. There's room to see when that, when those guys are three or four yards from you're trying to throw, that's tough. So that's going to, that part will change. And his accuracy. It's scary to think what this offense could do next year, but hopefully, you know, and I think they believe that. And, and I think the way they went to it, we were, our expectations were high because we went in 12 and four. We won the AFC both years. They came out of nowhere. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, they get in against Kansas City. Who expected to beat Kansas City the week before, right, in that game? And somehow they pull that out after being way down. Jamar Chase goes for like 1,000 yards in one in one game, and it's unbelievable. And, you know, people are like, who hey, is Jamar Chase? He's pretty good. We we all heard about him, but now we've seen him. So they're, they look at it a little bit differently, potentially, because it was kind of unexpected. So... From that standpoint, I'm hopeful that they pick up where they left off, because what happens, you gain confidence. And that defense played so well; they're going to be tough. But the AFC, you could go eight and nine or nine and eight, not make the playoffs, and have a, and and play great football. I mean, AFC is going to be unbelievably hard.
0: So transitioning now to your work with mental health advocacy, um, what? drove you what really started this passion for raising awareness for mental health and trying to end the stigma
1: so back when i was playing in the 80s um my ex-wife we found out she was bipolar actually we didn't find out she was bipolar till years later we thought she was schizophrenic um and how it the turmoil it caused within our family was just unbelievable and trying to get her help was crazy. I mean, it was, she, she had some help and she was on some medication and it was going pretty well for a while, but the medication was would make her really tired. So she didn't want to be on the medication anymore, try a different medication and that didn't really do any good. Uh, it got violent at times. It just became a scary situation. my One of my sons said, dad, you know, I went over, he just told me this, in the last few months, he says, you know, I remember going over to one of my friend's house and it was, he goes, I didn't know what normal was. He says, it was so different than what we were living. I didn't, he goes, I didn't know. I thought everybody lived like us because you get your normal, right? That's what you get used to, your environment. And that's how it was. And it was very difficult for everybody, for the kids particularly and for me. And um, so that's that what really spurred me, I don't know, 10 or 12, 13, 14 years ago to get involved with the Butler County Mental Health Levy because I knew how important it was. And they were saying that there's very there was very little funding going toward helping that. And part of that is is alcohol, part of that is suicide, part of that is drugs, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, suicide. I mean, all of those come back to something going on chemically in your brain and trying to find out how to get help. So that's, that's what drives it.
0: Can you talk a little bit about some of the resources that we have here in the greater Cincinnati area that helps not only to end the stigma, but to combat mental illness? I think of, um, centers like the Lindner Center for Hope, uh, for instance. Can you talk a little, can you talk a little bit about what we have here in the community that can help combat mental illness?
1: There's all kinds of uh, places, whether it be private uh, like Linder Center or um, oh my gosh I've got there's one over in Milford. And I can't think of, it's it's a phenomenal location. Uh, they're doing some great things. it's a it's it's a former home that uh, people can go to and you know these are a little bit more extended stays uh sojourner uh i know somebody that's gone there and had greatly helped um and and churches there's many churches that have recovery processes and and meetings and and then you got your alcoholics anonymous your your drugs you know you have your suicide prevention which i did this year I uh, did the ad for suicide prevention and and getting to know those guys over there, the director. Oh my gosh, what they do and what they'll do for somebody to help somebody is phenomenal. I had a friend whose son was struggling and I got them together and he, the step, you know, they, they helped tremendously. So there are resources out there that were not there previously, but ultimately it comes down to somebody wanting to get help. It's really, you can't make somebody do something they don't wanna do. Even somebody is forced to go into a rehab facility. If at some point in time, they don't decide that this has changed in their life and it's something they want, ultimately they're probably gonna relapse when they come out. So, but there's a lot of great success stories out there. And many of those people are the ones that are helping out because it's much easier. I've I've not had those types of issues. So it's hard for me to sit down with somebody who has a mental illness and tell them that you know what, what I can do to help them. I, I, all I can do is direct them and support them, right, and direct them to some place that might help them. But somebody who's been there and been through it oftentimes can really impact them because, hey, this is somebody that's experienced what I experienced, and this is what they've been able to do to get their life straight, and these are the things they went through, and maybe this is a facility they went through to, to help. get help so all that stuff um the the positive side of it is becoming there's great much greater awareness and it's not you know athletics big tough football players well you know what's going on inside the chemicals in your brain it's it can be for anybody can have issues doesn't matter how big and strong you are because it's it's humbling it just pulls you down so you know, that's why I'm involved and that I've gotten involved and want to encourage people that are out there to get help if they if they're having issues because there is help for them.
0: You know, I am someone who is very vocal about my mental health and my mental illness. I um, have battled severe anxiety and depression in my life and have sought help for it. I, I still go to I still go to counseling once a month. I When I'm not doing well, I go twice a month. Um, How can you talk a little bit about the role that awareness and discussion about the topic, what the role that it plays in ending the stigma around mental health?
1: Well, I think you just said it. I mean, people are talking about it today, and that can end the stigma much quicker than the way it used to be when it was buried. Right? Every somebody has a they have a problem. We don't talk about it. Somebody has an insulin problem. You gotta go get some you gotta go get some help you know if you have a diet if you're a diabetic and whatever else if you've got cholesterol problem if you've got high blood pressure there's no stigma about those things whereas mental health for a long time has been and so I think just the fact that there's it's much more publicized you're talking about it you know the guys Hayden Hurst uh was talking about it you know the football players that stepped away a couple of different times this past year, or or the athletes, uh Simone Biles has stepped away. You know, there's a lot of pressure. We don't always know where people's pressure comes from, right? And we don't always we don't always know what's going on in their life that may create some issues that might bring on depression. You it know, might be going fine, and then there's something in your life that triggers it. And the more aware you are of it, I'm sure you have a you can combat it a little bit more. And you're like, okay, I need, I need some help here. Well, when you were first things were first happening, did you know, did you know what was going on? You probably were trying to figure out what was going on or maybe this is just how I feel until somebody could help you kind of work your way through it.
0: With with someone who doesn't struggle um, with mental illness how can they help? How can they help in the battle to end the stigma? Um, someone who may not have a personal connection to someone who has battled mental illness or uh, mental illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar. How can those people who don't necessarily have a connection, how can they help in ending the stigma?
1: Well, I think it's always money and <laughs> making, making donations to help because uh, certainly that's, always one of the issues, right? If you don't have enough money to support what you're trying to do. But being supportive and not, I think not talking negatively about it. So I think that's one of the issues you run into is somebody's healthy and they think somebody else is sick and they've they've got issues and they'll talk negatively about it. So somebody's uncomfortable seeking help because their friends are making fun of them. So I think to be as supportive as possible to anybody around, because you don't really know all the time. Because some people are really good face to face, and when they're hanging out, what happens when they go home? You know, they might be working really hard. Because like when my my ex had diagnosis of schizophrenia, the the uh, doctor was saying, and it turned out it was actually bipolar. But somehow they're like when they go into work, a lot of times they can keep it together at work, whereas when they come home in a safe place, and then all of a sudden things kind of fall apart. So, you know, since you don't always know when you do find out, I think you, you need to just be supportive of whatever it is that those people are trying to do and support them in any way. Cause if you don't, you know, if they end up in and going someplace, just be, just be a friend, right? Just be a friend. I don't know if that's what exactly what you, cause if you don't know anybody, if you're not around it, you know, it's kind of, it's not something you're really thinking about.
0: Yeah. Real quick. Uh, I know you mentioned, um, donating to organizations. Are there any organizations here locally or just any organizations that you're passionate about that people can um, to look up and possibly donate to?
1: From a mental health standpoint or, yeah. um, well, I think uh, suicide prevention because that's kind of a key, right? I mean, that suicide prevention can lead into, somebody could have an alcohol problem, they could have a drug problem, They could be depressed. I mean, there's all kinds of facets that lead potentially to somebody dying, taking their own life. So the suicide prevention is always looking for funds. They would be, they'd be outstanding. They have, they have other organizations, they work with, they reach out to every, they can really reach out to everybody. So that's a good starting point.
0: Yeah. Um, Right before we end, I do want to say, yeah, as you said, suicide prevention, there is a national suicide prevention hotline for anyone who's listening to this podcast, who um, either you may need this hotline or someone you know may need this hotline. The number is 1-800-273-8255. Jim, thank you so much for doing this podcast. It is really an honor to be able to talk to you about the Bengals, about mental health, Um, Two areas that I'm really passionate about Um, and just thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. We didn't get a chance really to discuss Evan McPherson all world. Oh, yes. Got it together. He's amazing. I think he's the next Justin Tucker. He's as close to Justin Tucker as I've ever seen. So the Bengals are very fortunate. They're going to have a, a long they're going to have this kid for a long time and it'll be exciting to see what he does throughout his career.
0: I'll have to have you back on so that we can talk more about Evan, <laughs> Evan McPherson. Well, Jim, thank you so much. Um, this has been Jim Breach, all-time lean scorer in Bengals franchise history, kicker on the 1981 and 1988 um, Cincinnati Bengals Super Bowl teams. Um, what a thrill to have him on the podcast. And we will be right back. Thanks, babe. Back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I am so thankful and honored again that Jim Breach came on the podcast to tell those stories and to talk about his work with ending the stigma around mental health. That's exactly what I wanted when I decided I want to do an episode on this topic. And I'm just again thankful and honored and humbled that a Bengals legend came on the Clayton Castle podcast to talk about these serious issues. I'm hoping for more Bengals legends in the future, but for now, man, I am just so blown away that that interview actually happened. And again, thank you to Jim Breach for coming on and talking about this very serious topic and having some lighthearted moments as well. That's it for this episode. Remember, you can find us on Facebook at the Clayton Castle Podcast. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. We will be back with more episodes coming up in a few weeks. Until then, see you soon.